Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And for a limited time, get more fun for less with the Michigan Bundle for just $49.99. Exclusive to Michigan residents only. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up? This is your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Weird House Cinema. This is Rob Lamb. And this is Joe McCormick. And today's movie on Weird House Cinema is the 1981, or maybe 1980, I saw some dispute about that, Spanish horror film, Night of the Werewolf, also known as Return of the Wolfman, also known as uh, maybe some other titles too, directed by Paul Nashi, written by Paul Nashi, starring Paul Nashi, the creative trifecta uh, previously accomplished by such luminaries as Orson Welles and Edward D. Wood Jr. Mm-hmm. Now, if you have been listening to Weird House for a while, you will probably recognize that name. You know that we have covered several Paul Nashi movies in the past, and the one we're talking about today is part of a saga, a Paul Nashi saga of a recurring character. It is one of his many, many Valdemar movies. And uh, this time, the character Valdemar returns from beyond the grave to engage wolf mode overdrive adjacent to a necrovivified Countess Bathory, and by the end of the movie, he will either do evil or stop evil or maybe both, but probably not neither. That's right. That's right. I mean, this is a, you know what you're getting into with this film. Um, and, you know, it, it, there are a lot of a lot of the beats are the same compared to other films that uh, Paul Nashie did or films unrelated mostly to Paul Nashie that we've discussed already. A uh, c- couple of fun facts. Um, you mentioned that, yeah, he's the he's the director. He's the writer. He's also the star, though. I will say he only plays one role. Uh, in this film, <laughs> other films, he plays multiple roles on top of that. But um, the uh, the Blu-ray set uh, that, that I have that this came out of has some great uh, notes in it by Nashi scholar Myrick Lipinski. And he points out that since Nashi was directing as well as acting 
and was wearing heavy werewolf makeup in some of the scenes, there were times where he was directing the movie in full werewolf makeup, I, which uh, which must have been a sight. I would love to see set photos of that. Like, is he in the chair with the bullhorn when the, in the wolfman makeup? <laughs> One would hope. Now, we should clarify, I think this comes up whenever we talk about a werewolf movie. Uh, what werewolf morph are we dealing with in this film? Uh, your, your two basic categories are the more canine long snout werewolf that often uh, is paired with a more quadrupedal posture or at least a more hunched posture. Uh, or you've, on the other hand, you've got the more humanoid shaped wolfman, sort of the Lon Chaney Jr. version that has a human shaped head just covered in hair with fangs. In this movie, we're dealing with the latter. No long snouts to be seen. Yeah, and it's it's a look that I think a lot of films got away from for a while, especially in the wake of An American Werewolf in London, you know, mm-hmm. you, everything got snouty. And there was this feeling that, oh, the, the, the classic Wolfman look was just done and we shouldn't go back to that. But I, I, I don't know. I think that I think we're we're coming back around to realizing that a classic Wolfman, if done well, looks amazing. Uh, one example of this recently is the uh, the excellent Werewolf by Night uh, special from Marvel. Um, uh, this this is this is tremendous. It has a werewolf in it, and it is a classic Wolfman look, and it's done really well. Haven't seen it, so I can't comment. It's worth checking out. Yeah, put, put it on your your list for for Halloween. It's like uh, it's less than an hour. It's it's fun. But okay, so. Rob, uh, I know you are much deeper in the Paul Nashi canon and the Voldemar verse than I am. So can you explain where and how this movie fits into the overall Voldemar saga? Okay, so this is, uh, with some caveats, the ninth cinematic adventure of Count Voldemar Daninsky. Uh, for our part, we previously watched the third movie in the saga, 1970's Assignment Terror. And we've also watched the unrelated Nashi film Horror Rises from the Tomb from 72. So Daninsky, the character, first appears in 1968's The Mark of the Wolfman, which Nashi wrote. And originally he was just going to be the writer on that one. And they were going to get Lon Chaney Jr. to play the part. But Lon Chaney Jr. was too sick to travel at that point in his life. So uh, Nashi jumped in and acted as well. Daninsky's final appearance in a Nashi-directed picture was 1983's The Beast and the Magic Sword. Uh, the 10th Daninsky film, though two more films of other lesser directors would also utilize the character with Nashi in the role, and Nashi only, Nashi only wrote one of those. Uh, still, Night of the Werewolf, uh, which we're talking about here, 80 or 81, was the first Daninsky film in like five years. Now, <laughs> an interesting caveat here to putting a, a, a fine number on the, uh, the Voldemar Daninsky films is that 1968's Knights of the Wolfman is often referred to as the second Daninsky film, but it either wasn't actually made or finished or might not have, have ever existed to begin with. If it did exist, it's considered a lost film because even Nashi did not see it. Nashi alone seemed to insist that he had actually filmed scenes for this in Paris. Uh, I think the story was that the director died in a car crash and the film was never picked up from the processing lab and then was eventually probably destroyed. But no one has ever seen it, and um, and that's assuming it was finished at all. Uh, So it's uncertain what's going on there. It's also been uh, theorized that perhaps Nashi kind of embellished it early in his career when he didn't have that many credentials. Uh, so I don't know. I don't know where the truth lies on that. 
oh, like a, a, I have a girlfriend, but she lives in Canada. Like I already made a movie, but it was never released. Yeah, I made a werewolf film, a second werewolf film, but it was in Paris. And I don't know, they haven't done anything with the footage, which, you know, I guess was a safe. There was no IMDb back in those days. Well, interesting that he would go on to make a movie of the same name later on that's, well, almost exactly the same name, but with singular instead of plural, knight versus knights. Yeah. Now, I haven't seen all of the the Daninsky films. Um, I've I've only seen really a handful of these. Uh, But it's important to note that all of them are essentially standalone. You don't have to watch these in order. Each one seems to reinvent Daninsky's origin story to to fit the plot as needed. So sometimes his origin is very modern. Uh, other times his origin is, is in the case of this film, is situated in the past. Um, for instance, the previous film to this one, 1975's The Werewolf and the Yeti, which I've seen. It's, it's a pretty fun one. But Daninsky transforms into a werewolf in that one because a pair of Tibetan werewolf women capture him while he's on an excursion in Tibet. Mm. So you're saying they're all standalone and in many ways they sort of recapitulate some of the same plot elements and uh, and reimagine the origin each time. So it might be more apt to compare uh, Valdemar Daninsky to a character like Dracula that is in oh, many yeah. movies but gets but is, but most of those movies stand alone as opposed to thinking of it as a as a continuity or a canon. Absolutely. Dracula, Frankenstein, all the, all those characters were very much characters that inspired Paul Nashi, and therefore that they're part of the DNA of this character that he created. So the two Daninsky movies we've seen, it's interesting because the Daninsky elements in them have a lot in common, but the movies overall are very different. Assignment Terror was a I'd call it like a sort of a gonzo mashup of the classic universal mm-hmm. monsters. The premise was that aliens want to conquer Earth, and they do so by rounding up Frankenstein, Dracula, uh, Daninsky is the Wolfman, I think a mummy too, and some other critters. And they're like, we're going to use these monsters to attack Earthlings and get them, I don't know, I guess to surrender to us. I remember the vibe of that movie was very uh, wild, chaotic, and science fiction. Though the Daninsky element in particular felt almost a little out of place. It was more this kind of like tragic gothic horror love story that uh, was just one little wedge of that whole pie. Uh, You could tell me if you disagree with my characterization in in a second. But I'm going to say this movie is very different than Assignment Terror in that it feels more like they were trying to go for... uh, sort of like what some of the hammer horror movies of the 70s were like, kind of a uh, sexy escapade in the Carpathian Mountains. Yeah, no, I agree with that. Um, Assignment Terror also came out at a time where it's like Spanish cinema wasn't really ready to like fully embrace the horror. Uh, but then horror is embraced throughout the 1970s. And, uh, and at this point, Paul Nash is setting out to make a, uh, just a gothic horror film. You don't have to have a spy story in there. Oh, yeah, there were spies, too, weren't there? There was a boring spy story in Assignment Terror that, uh, yeah, amid all the monsters. You only remember the monsters. Those were the best scenes. I remember it being funny that the uh, that the Frankenstein monster was like the really bad monster. Like, of all, you could sort mm-hmm. of rank the monsters in terms of morality in that movie. And Frank was one of the worst. He was like the sort of the enforcer droid who was doing all the hits for the bad aliens, yeah. <laughs> which... It seemed like a strange thing because the Frankenstein character from the novel is so conflicted and tragic. Yeah. <laughs>
But you, ha- you ultimately had a good uh, teardown battle between uh, the werewolf and the Frankenstein monster. So, so it was worth it. All right. Well, the elevator pitch on this one is pretty simple. It's werewolf versus vampire. More specifically, it's Daninsky versus Bathory. So it's Elizabeth Bathory as a vampire. Yes. Let's hear probably not all of the trailer audio, but let's hear just a little bit of that trailer audio. Well, if you're wondering where you can watch this film, uh, you can stream it a few different ways. Uh, Sometimes it's available under the title The Craving. That was one of its uh, American release titles. Though the best streaming option is probably Shout Factory TV, since Shout Factory also put this film out on a glorious Blu-ray set, part of their excellent Paul Nashi collection. Uh, Part one and two are out. I own both of them. Uh, I hope we're getting a part three as well. There's plenty more stuff for them to throw on a disc. This particular set, part one, collects Night of the Werewolf, Vengeance of the Zombies, Horror Rises from the Tomb, which is a, another favorite of mine, Blue Eyes of the Broken Doll, and Human Beasts. All right, well, let's uh, let's get into the cast here. Uh, starting at the top, obviously, we have Paul Nashi, who's playing Valdemar Daninsky in this. He also wrote it. He directed it. He lived 1934 through 2009. Uh, the Spanish horror icon, the Lon Chaney Jr. of Madrid. Um, as a young man, he grew up on a cinematic diet of Universal Monster Pictures, and after a brief foray into architecture school, he got into weightlifting and then into acting, writing, and eventually directing. He ranked up more than 100 acting credits, 52 writing credits, 23 directing credits. Not all of his work is horror. He appeared in and worked on crime, comedy, war, Western movies as well, but it's his horror films that continue to resonate and have earned him uh, you know, recognition internationally. Uh, there's a lot to dissect in a Nashi film and in a Nashi performance. You know, there are these themes of uh, tragic gothic melodrama, often laid on really thick, and um, and this courses through his films. But at, at least in my opinion, amid the the budget and time constraints and the elements of exploitation cinema that are you know all over these pictures, uh, I feel like Paul Nashi's passion shines through, especially in his monsters and his outsider characters, which is one of the prime reasons I think his films continue to resonate. And it wasn't just, uh, you know, fantastic, uh, monstrous and supernatural outsider characters that that interested him, uh, interest uh, Nash, Nashi as well. I was reading about this. I didn't know about this until a research for this picture. But apparently, after meeting a trans woman at a Madrid gay club, he was inspired to write and then also acted in a supporting role in a film that would become 1977's El Transsexual, 
uh, which I've not seen, but it's apparently a really compassionate and shockingly non-exploitive picture. It's a cabaret romance drama with a lot of music in it, intercut with documentary testimonials from a Spanish trans woman about trans identity. Uh, I've read that the story itself isn't the best, but the film serves as kind of a time capsule for the Madrid LGBTQ club scene of Madrid at the time. Oh, interesting. But uh, in general, like Nashi could really bust out these scripts. <laughs> I was reading that like Horror Rises from the Tomb, he wrote in like a day and a half, like that was his deadline to get mm -hmm. a script in. And he's like, thank goodness for amphetamines uh, because I got it done. Oh, uh, no. But like in 1972 alone, he wrote and starred in seven movies. And then he eventually started directing as well in 76 with the film Inquisition. His 72 sounds kind of like Roger Corman's 1957 or something. Yeah, <laughs> prime year. Well, as an actor, there is always something I, I do enjoy about Paul Nashi. Uh, but in this movie in particular, I, I notice he's kind of he's a one track lover down a two way <laughs> lane. Uh, he, he brings a lot of uh, passion of the wolf. Yes. But also, I did want to note that uh, that Rachel watching part of the movie over my shoulder here, uh, it was during one of the brooding human mode scenes. She was like, is this a Matt Berry character? And I had to say, Ooh, yes, a little bit, a little bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, 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 it's pretty much the case. I could see this kind of character fitting in uh, really well on Dark Place. There's a certain, uh, you know, over-seriousness to everything. But I find it interesting that it seems like he's doing all these different things, but uh, he's always trying to write a, a tragic supernatural love story. And then in the end, he always gets a gets like a stake or a dagger to the heart. And, and that's the end of it. But uh, in a kind of like uh, bittersweet uh, resolution of the curse. Yeah, there's actually a wonderful quote from Paul Nashi in the booklet that comes with the Paul Nashi collection, volume one. Uh, he said of this film, quote, it contains all the coordinates of my own life fitting together like the pieces of a jigsaw puzzle, the claustrophobic castle the gothic tombs, the ill-fated love affair, the menace of the undead, the ostracism of someone who is despised for being different, and the all-pervading shadow of death. All these elements go to make up my personality and my work. So I think that's the thing. It's like these, like he's, however it comes together in Paul Nashi's head and then comes out in, in his work, like it's personal for him, <laughs> you yeah. know, they're, they're cranking these pictures out, you know, it's about, you know, they're limited budget, li limited time, but for him, it's still personal uh, when it comes to characters like Valdemar Donetsky. Yeah. So to, to maybe uh, revise a bit the comparison to, to Hammer Horror, like that he's sort of trying to make something along the lines of those like lusty 70s Hammer films. Mm -hmm. It's kind of in that mode, but it is at the same time, uh, a little bit less professional, like it's a little bit sloppier, but it's also far more like of a passion project. You can tell it's less yeah. of a uh, less of a business product and more of like th this guy is pouring his heart and soul in. Yeah. And this was also worth it's worth pointing out. This was at a time where the horror world in general was kind of moving on into slasher territory, uh, like gothic horror uh, wasn't really like the, at the forefront anymore. All right, so that's Paul Nashi. That's our our, uh, our our werewolf. But we also need our vampire. We need our Countess Elizabeth Bathory, and she is played in this film by Julia Sali. 
Now her dates are unknown. I couldn't find any birth uh, birth date for her. I, I I think she's she's still around. She's retired at this point. But uh, was she was she is a Spanish ballerina turned actor and producer that was active from 1972 through 1985. She got her acting start in the 1973 war movie La Gorilla, starring Francisco Rabal. Uh, he, he was in uh, uh, that 3D movie we watched. He played um, who did he play? Oh, Treasure of the Four Crowns. Is that the four, it? This the Four Crowns. Yes, yeah. yes, yeah. He was the the guy who shows up um, play, painted blue. He's the strong man with the heart problems. Oh yeah, our, our tragic Hulk. Yes. Uh, she only had a bit part in that, uh, and she was credited in that as La Poca, which apparently loosely translates to the white girl. Uh, she's also credited as La Poca on her next small role in uh, Armando Diosorio's Demon Witch Child from 75, and she worked with that director again on his other film released in 75, Night of the Seagulls. That's his fourth and final Blind Dead movie. We watched one of the Blind Dead movies previously on Weird House. But then in 76, she had a supporting role in Leon Klimovsky's The People Who Own the Dark, which featured Paul Nashti in a very small role. Uh, I believe they met at a cast party for this film. And afterwards, the two would work together on 13 films, with Sally serving as producer on six of those. Apparently, while traveling in Japan for ballet, she made connections with Japanese film producers. And these connections would prove vital for various productions that they would work on together. So... If Paul Nashi is the dark count of Spanish horror, then I think Julia Sally may well be considered the dark countess. Um, mm. Their films together include 77's, uh, some multiple films in 77, uh, Inquisition, Death of a Delinquent, and Commando Chiqui, Death of a President. In 78, The Frenchman's Garden, 79, Madrid al Desnudo, 1980's The Beast Carnival slash Human Beasts as well as a movie called The Cantabrians, 1981's Night of the Werewolf, of course, 83's The Beast and the Magic Sword. That's a Daninsky film set in Japan uh, with Japanese actors. Uh, 1984's The Last Kamikaze, 1984's Mi Amigo El Vagabundo. This is a Paul Nashi written and directed family movie. Oh. And then 1985's Operation Mantis, Apparently a disastrous film that nobody liked and did not make any money. But it's a really wacky spy comedy uh, that has been compared to like, you know, wacky on like the naked gun kind of level uh, did not work. And this was their final collaboration and her final film project. I did not know Paul Nashi had made a family film. I'm kind of curious to see what that is like. <laughs> I know. Like I say, we we know him best, certainly outside of outside of his time period and outside of Spain for these horror films. But he he made and or was involved in various genres. Mm -hmm. Like, it's hard for me to imagine him making a film that does not end with a silver dagger in the heart. Right. <laughs> or some sort of blood coming out of his mouth at some point. Yeah. But as for Julia Sally, I, I, I love her in this. Um, mm -hmm. Countess Bathory is a frequent subject in horror movies, especially more sort of erotically um, aligned horror projects, because it's at, it, at base level, it's an excuse to bathe a woman in blood or have a woman in a bathtub full of blood or have someone hanging over a bathtub with blood. And it's certainly possible, you know, that that in this picture, too, like that could be it. That could be the sole reason for having her in the movie, but I think uh, Sally gives this character like a great physical presence. You know, she's a beautiful actor, certainly, but she has these like really piercing eyes, uh, this kind of like smoldering intensity. Um, and her costuming is also very on point. 
uh, helping her to further mirror illustrations of the historic Bathory, who she already kind of resembles. And it also kind of helps give her this lean, ravenous energy that makes her feel like this pale, deathly hunger burning within the folds of her dark garments. I think that's well said. Yes, she is absolutely like pulsing with Bathorian uh, energy in this film. It, it It's a very convincing performance. Um, no, I thought maybe we should mention here, uh, the, of course, the fact that she is playing a real historical figure. That's kind of a, a strange twist on this. I don't know a lot about Elizabeth Bathory, so I can't do a full history lesson here. But just in case you don't know, this is a real historical figure, a Hungarian countess who lived from 1560 to 1614. And she was accused, tried and convicted of like an obscene number of murders, hundreds. Uh, so she she is often identified as one of the most prolific serial killers in history. Uh, and though I don't have the requisite historical knowledge to judge on this issue, I think it's worth flagging that I have read some Modern writers have doubts about whether she was actually guilty or whether she was the target of some kind of, uh, I don't know, persecution or witch hunt. Uh, at the very least, it seems that uh, a lot, if not all, of the evidence used against her was either hearsay or confessions extracted under torture, neither of which would be considered a legitimate form of evidence in any uh, good uh, judicial proceeding today. But it also looks like some people think there might have been solid physical evidence as well. I, I don't know. So I, I didn't have time to look deeply into this question for today's Weird House. But if you want somebody exploring this in more depth, I am almost certain that our colleagues Holly and Tracy at Stuff You Missed in History Class have uh, one or more good episodes on this. They might even have one on Polish Count uh, Waldemar Daninsky. Uh, I'm looking forward to that as well. <laughs> Wait, I don't know if you're pulling my leg. I think this is no, a made up character, right? Yeah, yeah, he's, he's okay, he's okay. Up. But, but no, this is all a good point, you know. Yeah, Bathory is based on a historic uh, figure, and yeah, my understanding as well is that there's legitimate reason to doubt uh, that that she actually did all of these things. Maybe some of these things, who knows? But certainly, there were those that benefited uh, politically from these accusations being leveled at her. Also, I'm going to just go ahead and say that she's she did not become a vampire. I think I think we can go ahead and, and put that to rest. See, you just reveal your closed mindedness. <laughs> Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420 foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, 
personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah! Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. All right. Well, we got some, some more actors to, 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 to run through here. Uh, we have uh, Erica. Erica is uh, one of the um, would-be witches in this film. She's the, the head would-be witch, played by Sylvia Aguilar. Dates unknown, um, leader of three college friends who aspire to have satanic powers and become masters over life and death. Uh, she's the most devoted of the three, and as we quickly see, is ruthless in her pursuit of dark powers. Uh, she'd uh, previously worked with Nashi on his 79 film, uh, The Traveler, in which Nashi plays the devil. And uh, the same year, she had a small part in Jaguar Lives, an action movie starring kickboxer Joe Lewis, Christopher Lee, Donald Pleasance, Barbara Bach, and John Houston. Uh, and she was also in various Spanish B-movies. Now, I don't know if I would agree with your characterization of these three friends all wanting to have satanic powers. <laughs> Erica clearly wants to have satanic powers. But the other two, especially... Uh, What's her name? Karen. I, she just is protesting that she's just a scientist. Now, what exactly <laughs> field of science is she studying? I think we can explore that later. That is a, a, a rather strange uh, question as approached by the movie. But I'm going to say uh, mixed motivations in this group of three friends. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of uh, Piranha Mandir, uh, where one one person's uh, a quest to end a deadly multi-generational curse is another person's vacation. Same thing here. One person's quest to resurrect uh, a, a dead vampire queen and, uh, um, and acquire dark powers is just another person's excuse to get out of Rome for a few days. Right. So Erica wants to become the queen of hell. Karen just wants to do science about yes. raising the dead. And Karen is played by Azucena Hernandez, who lived 1960 through 2019. Um, yeah, I think she, I agree with you. I think she's a good good girl who falls in in with a bad crowd of, of ultimately aspiring satanic witches. She's also our romantic female lead. Hernandez acted in various uh, Spanish sex comedies and horror films, including Nash's 1980 film The Beast Carnival, a.k.a. Human Beasts. So this is our character who, who yeah, as you say, uh, she falls into a tragic, doomed love story with Valdemar, except they left out the love story. Did you notice that? It's like it got <laughs> cut from the film, the whole thing with them falling in love. Yeah, I mean, you almost don't need it. You just like trust <laughs> us, it happened. I mean, it's Paul Nashi. I mean, I, I meant that literally, like it feels <laughs> like a scene got cut. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, there are a number of number of places, like you pointed out, where it feels like, wait, who are these characters? Why are they here? Yeah, it seems like there should be some connective material. And I did see I didn't have time to watch it, but on the DVD, there was uh, there was something about deleted scenes. And I was like, oh, OK, yeah, that, that, that would make sense. All right. Now, the the remaining of the three friends is Barbara. Barbara is pay, played by Pilar Alcone, 
born 1952. Uh, this was her debut, but she went on to play other often uncredited roles, two notable uncredited roles in 1982. She's a victim in the Spanish horror movie Pieces, and she plays one of Tulsa Doom's slave girls in Conan the Barbarian. Um, there's an English language interview with her at the Conan Completist website where she talks about the shoot and identifies which extra she is. She says, quote, if you pay attention, I stand out from the other girls. I am first seen topless with some sort of helmet on my head, looking kind of stoned, drugged. Then I rise to go towards Conan, who wounds me with his sword at belly level, killing me on the spot. Okay, she knows how to sell her role. Yeah, yeah. All right, uh, there's another character that's uh, important to the plot, and that's Mircea. She is a, a scarred woman. We find out she has a tragic backstory involving accusations of witchcraft, played by Beatrice Elorita. Uh, dates unknown as well, Spanish actor of the 70s and 80s who worked as a costume designer and stylist on Spanish films in the 90s. Her other films include 1971's Necrophagus, which I've not seen but has blood-sucking lizard men in it. Uh, 72's Call of the Vampire and 1986's Blood Hunt. All right, uh, this is a bit part, but a familiar face shows up as Sando the Bandit. It's uh, Louis Barbu, who lived 1927 through 2001, familiar face in Spanish cinema of this time period. Former circus performer turned actor with a knack for heavies and villains. You might remember him from or, uh, from Amando Diosorio's Return of the Blind Dead, which we talked about, as well as The Lorelei's Grasp, which we also talked about on Weird House. He played a major role in that one. In this one, he's just a bit part. He's he's like a nasty bandit who attacks nasty the heroes. Bandit. Yeah. Yeah, he's got, I mean, like I say, he's got that, that classic heavy face. All right, the makeup on this one uh, was Angel Luis de Diego, uh, responsible for the werewolf makeup in particular, which I think is pretty top-notch in this film. I, I, I thought the werewolf makeup looked good. Um, I, I think they had a higher budget on this one than some previous uh, Daninsky films. And then Antonio Molina has effects credit. This is a familiar name from Spanish productions, uh, the special effects on them from the mid-60s through today. Like, he's still involved in pictures that, uh, often big Western pictures that are shooting in Spain. Mm -hmm. All right, and finally, note on the music here. The music credit on this film is just the Cam Espana Library, uh, but it pulls in some awesome tracks. So it it pulls in tracks from other movies. Uh, It doesn't have its own original score. The opening track is the most notable example. It is an exuberant Italio disco track that I personally first heard in a DJ mix by DJ Boba Fat for the Death Waltz record company several years back. Um, and I didn't know what it was for the longest. I just knew that I liked it. And it, uh, it pops up early in this movie. It's a splendid track titled Too Risky a Day for a Regatta by Stelvio Capriana, a.k.a. Viostel who lived 1937 through 2018, an Italian composer behind the scores of such movies as 1971's Bay of Blood, 82's Pieces, Piranha 2, The Spawning, plus a load of other B-movies. This track is from his score for the 1977 Jaws ripoff Tentacles, which I believe may have also recycled some elements from an earlier score he did. Uh, Tentacles benefited from a solid cast, John Huston, Shelley Winters, Bo Hopkins, and Henry Fonda, and it seems to have made money, but it does not have a reputation for being good. Uh, even Michael Weldon's main comment about it is just about how stupendously boring the octopus scenes are. <laughs> I was looking up stills from this because I found, wait a minute, there's a 77 Jaws ripoff about an octopus called Tentacles or in Italian Tentacoli. And <laughs> I haven't seen this. So I'm like, oh, I've got to see it. I'm looking at stills and they're just 
all uh, close-ups of people's faces under blaring direct sunlight. Uh, so yeah. it's like they had not discovered magic hour yet. And uh, I, I was like, where's the, where's the octopus? Where's, where's the speculative element? It just, yeah. it, it did not look appealing. Hmm. So at some point we need to do a, a proper Jaws ripoff. There's so many, so there's so many of them. Uh, there's got to be one that hits the sweet spot. You know, I have watched a lot of bad shark movies in my life, but it, it's strange. I find a lot of the early Jaws ripoffs, like the ones that came directly in its wake and were usually about some other type of animal, but followed the same plot arc as Jaws. Uh, a lot of those are just like not very fun for some reason. Mm. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of the, the problems about a cash grab, right? Sometimes that really is all it is. Sometimes there's nobody's personal vision wrapped up in the project. One more note on the music here. In the Blu-ray uh, material, Lipinski writes that um, Neil Morricone was originally prom uh, promoted as being the guy doing the score before the film was released. But obviously that didn't come to pass. Still, they apparently used some Morricone tracks sprinkled throughout the film. There's another uh, Cipriani track in there, and also it features uh, some of the work of Carlo uh, Rusticelli, who scored Mario Bava's 1964 film Blood and Black Lace. Well, Too Risky a Day for a Regatta is an excellent track. It's kind of a, yeah, I guess Italo disco would be the correct term. I was thinking of it as a, a funk rock track, like Euro funk rock. It has this great walk down bass line, but it has harpsichord music just jingling in the background while it's sort of rock, electric rock instruments in the front. Let's hear it, Thaisman. All right. I love it. I love it. Well, now that we're all revved up, let's get into the plot of Night of the Werewolf. All right. We get a title. It says Hungary, uh, XVI century. I guess that's 16th century uh, and an establishing shot of a stone castle on a hillside. And there are soldiers with long pole axes and Red Cross tunics walking alongside an elegant woman in a wine colored dress as she passes through the castle gates. And they're marching with her as if escorting a prisoner. But could this beautiful and regal lady really be in such a position? Is she a prisoner? Well, they pass by an ominous scene. There is a muscled man in a red executioner's hood and a crowd of onlookers, a bearded man on a scaffold lashed to an X-shaped cross. Wait a minute, that bearded man, he looks familiar. We'll come back to him. Uh, in the foreground, there is a podium facing a row of seated nobles and judges, and then the soldiers march the woman up to the podium and she takes her place. And there's like a steward who unrolls a, a scroll and begins to read to the crowd. He says, Countess Elizabeth Bathory Nadazdi. Uh, and then, of course, people who know their morbid history, they hear that name. They go, ah, Elizabeth Bathory. Now they understand why she's being held prisoner. Steward says, this high court presided by the supreme judge of the realm, Lord Theodosius de Zulo, and the noble governor, Georgi Thurzo. Uh, and here we get a cutaway to these guys. And as soon as we get close-ups on the noblemen, I get the feeling like these old perverts are way too excited about the prospect of punishing this woman. And I, I can't help but feel like that we're supposed to feel that to some yeah. extent. You know, even though Bathory is going to be set up as the, the, the main villain of the piece, it's still... You know, we're going to have that sort of built-in sympathy for the outsider and the persecuted. Yeah. So, uh, so they say. Uh, so the the steward says uh, that it finds you guilty of the execrable crimes of witchcraft, vampirism, and pacts with the devil. I'm like, are those the crimes? Is murder not good enough anymore? 
That's like a lower court in these days. Yeah. Uh, Hence, you are to be sentenced to be immured in your chambers and to stay there forever until the hour of your death. Your servants, uh, name some servants, will be tortured and burned at the stake. That's what he says. And I was like, is that how they would say it even in the 16th century? Like, they will be tortured? I I think it'd be more euphemistic somehow. Now, uh, quick, quick question. Did you do the dub or the subtitles on these? The subtitles. Okay, yeah, I did the subtitles as well. There's never a problem with doing a dub on a Nashi film because it's my understanding that Nashi is almost always dubbed anyway, even if you're listening to it in the original language. Mm-hmm. Okay, but continue the sentence. Continue. Oh, the sentence. Okay, okay. It goes on. He names a bunch of other co-conspirators. Uh, your cousin Moses Otvos will be hanged, and the rest of your criminal accomplices, uh, Darvula, Barsini, and Torco, will be beheaded. Uh, and then, uh, oh, then Bathory herself, she has some things to say in a witchy whisper as the camera slowly zooms in on her face. She says, progeny of bastards, I will return. I will rise from my ashes and your world will turn into hell. <laughs> we had, of course, a similar scene uh, in Piranha Mandir as well. And also in A Horror Rises from the Tomb. You'd think that if you're if, if you're if you're trying and executing um, warlocks and witches, you need to stop giving them this chance to publicly curse everybody. Yeah. Uh, it's just going to bite you in the butt. It always does. Uh, and they always think they can beat it. They're like, look, if we bury them in like two separate places, <laughs> there is no way people will ever come along later and reunite their corpses. Yeah. Or in this case, they're like, we grounded her for life. Like, yeah, she's not going to be a problem anymore. Trust me. She's not allowed to come out of her room. Yeah, so the creepy nobles are whispering to themselves. They're like, that woman is a monster. She practiced cannibalism, drank blood, and sold her soul to the devil. Uh, and But I was like, wait, wasn't that already established in the charges they just heard? I guess the cannibalism is new information. Mm. But they say that thousands were murdered. Uh, ah, but here's something new. One of the nobles then points to the guy tied to the X-shaped cross. And what do you know? That looks a lot like Paul Nashi. That is Paul Nashi, but he is very bummed out. He he is just in a bad place in this scene. Yeah, I mean, not just that he's going to be executed, but like his heart has been broken. Yeah. Now, as a funny note, I did his tunic has a design on it that'll play into the plot later on. And it was reminding me of something I couldn't put my finger on. And then when I finally realized what it was, it was hilarious because it reminded me of the Major League Baseball logo. It's like that. <laughs> it was just like a diagonal slash with like the blue and the red. Yeah, I'm glad you pointed this out, because when I was watching it, I was like, something feels off. I don't know what it is, but I don't like something about this coat of arms, even though yeah. like clearly it's supposed to be some sort of coat of arms that I guess it's the Daninsky coat of arms. And, I, you know, I guess the color scheme matches up with some of the Polish and Hungarian coat of arms that you see. But, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, it, now that you pointed out, yeah, Major League Baseball. I, I think his costume deserved a better coat of arms. Yeah, like maybe they could have just done it in like black and red or something. I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, so the nobles say uh, that, you know him, that's Waldemar Daninsky. He's a Polish noble and he has served her faithfully, which probably means he's done a lot of bad stuff. Uh, But one of them says, you know, he carries the Pentagon sign on his chest. And I was thinking at first that they were referring to the, the baseball symbol. But no, I think they're talking about how he has like a scar on his chest in the shape of a Pentagon, like the the polygon. Now, I don't remember if they actually discussed this much, but we see it later. And my understanding was that, like, this is the mark that Bathory gave him. 
and cursed yeah. him with lycanthropy. And so, um, and, and made him, of course, her servant. I think that's right. So the nobles say she dominated him with her satanic trickery and used him in her evil revenges. Mm. So he's been convicted as well. Um, the steward is reading out the charges against him, says, quote, It is proved that in full moon and turned into a gigantic wolf, you devoured hundreds of innocent souls. Thus, your face will be covered with the mask of shame and your black heart will be pierced by the sacred cross wrought with silver from the uh, Bayerta chalice. Uh, and now Paul Nash, he, he looks really bummed, but actually he this is kind of a relief to him, I think. He sort of looks up at God, I guess, and says, now my spirit will finally be able to rest in peace. So it seems like actually he's not even mad about it. He's like, oh, fi- finally, they're going to just do the silver thing in my heart and everything will be OK. Bring on the mask of shame then. Yeah, so they behead one of the murder servants, and then they go up to Voldemar with the mask of shame. And I gotta say, it is it is a quite shameful mask. It it looks like an iron Ewok. <laughs> yeah, I I got kind of notes of a bat off of it, but uh, but you know, mm. it's the mask of shame, Joe. It's not the mask of looking really cool. Um, though I guess it does look cooler than some actual historic masks of shame that you find that tend to just look a little bit more goofy. Fair point. So they hammer the silver dagger into his heart, and that's, I guess that's it for Voldemar. He will never rise again. He's wearing the mask. The yeah. blood comes out of the mouth of the mask. And here's where we get the song. Is this the, the regatta song? Yeah. Bum, 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 bum. Groovy bass line, some, some horns blasting, and then the, uh, the harpsichord at the same time. Now, I think I had to look at two different versions of the credits, because I think on the... Um, the the uh, the American opening credits. There are there's like a long stretch where there are no credits over the mask. It's just music and bloody mask of shame. Uh, but in the uh, you look back at the original Spanish credits and like there are credits rolling over that. So uh, if, if that looks weird in the uh, international versions of it, that's just the international version. Then we cut to modern day, and I I know this is a Spanish movie, but this first scene in the modern era it is just so in line with the like archetype of the the first scene you get where you meet the protagonists in an italian horror movie of the 70s um so let me describe it and maybe you'll know what i mean we're uh we're we're somewhere in rome in the modern era four hip young people are hanging out on a blanket in the grass by a pool somewhere it's two men two women uh the women are beautiful. The men are skeezy jerks. Uh, bikinis, dudes in swim briefs, gold jewelry. There is a rattan TV tray on which there is an ice bucket and a quart of scotch. And they're mixing scotch with Schweppes over ice in fancy crystal pattern lowball glasses. And then there is a pack. The camera is close on a pack of Lark brand cigarettes lying between them in the grass. Next to an ashtray with like 30 cigarette butts in it, it looks like it's like noon, so like high sun beating down on them. At least we zoom out, at least two more packs of cigarettes become visible within a five-foot radius of the original. A portable radio is blasting some kind of song that has like... Uh, it's like candy sweet pop love song harmonies, but also what sounds like prog rock guitar. Mm. Then the women hanging out here are talking about a friend of theirs named Erica, who is about to head to Transylvania to explore, quote, the mysteries. They say it's like going back in time. 
And then the two dudes are like, your friend is stupid. Who still believes in ghosts and black, black magic in this day and age? And then uh, the other guy's like, uh, hey, remember when she got drunk and started talking about how she could communicate with the spirit of a dead Hungarian countess? Preposterous. And then uh, one of the ladies is like, hey, stop insulting our friend. We are scientists. And then the dudes are like, uh, scientists, but you're women. You're beautiful. You can't be scientists. <laughs> Uh, you should stop being interested in things that end with ology. And then the women shove the dudes into the pool and the dudes appear to yell something offensive at the women for which there were no subtitles. <laughs> now, give, give this film credit, though. They shove these these really uh, annoying dudes into the pool and uh, we never see them again. <laughs> we never see them again. They're just done with those guys. Yeah, I'm so glad they didn't come on the trip. I mean, if they'd come on the trip, they would die, to be sure, and there would uh -huh. be some sort of uh, catharsis in that. But uh, I'm glad they stayed stayed in Rome. I agree. I was when we met them. I was like, oh no, we just are these guys going to be around the whole movie? But no, nope. <laughs> shoved in the pool. They they yell some kind of insult, not even bother to subtitle it, and then we're gone. <laughs> Now, the whole thing about the two women from this scene being scientists, I was a little iffy on that because from what they're saying, whatever field of science these two people are studying seems to involve magic and necromancy <laughs> and maybe yeah. not even like studying it, but like practicing it. So I'm confused at what what science this is. This is the kind of science that is backed up in uh, ads for shady products like scientists agree. Well, it's. It's it's yeah. it's these folks. Maybe of the more pseudo variety. Okay. Mm -hmm. Uh so there's there's another scene uh we cut to where there's like an old professor and a young woman and they're having tea discussing Countess Bathory. This lady is the Erica that the other people were talking about behind her back in the previous scene. Uh, and the professor is in possession in this. He's got a he's got a gold meda medallion with a pentagram goat head on it. And it says Astaroth. And he says, you know, this medallion belonged to Countess Bathory. And according to legend, if the blood of a young woman is spilled on the ashes of the countess and the medallion ritual is used to invoke Astaroth, then Elizabeth Bathory is going to return from the grave. And Erica says, you know, Karen, Barbara, and I, uh, and Karen and Barbara were the, the women in the other scene. Uh, the three of us, we've researched old libraries, ruined castles, monasteries, and all kinds of documents. And the professor is like, I know you were my best students. I'm, I'm proud of your dedication. Uh, though at the same time, it does kind of sound like he's just trying to get her to stop talking about Elizabeth <laughs> Bathory. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but he's like, you know, nobody knows where Bathory's remains are, so we cannot continue our studies on this. But then Erica reveals she does know. She discovered the location of Bathory's ashes, as well as of Voldemar Daninsky and her cousin Otvos. They're all hiding in a castle somewhere in the Carpathian Mountains. And she says, and we will go there. And what exactly is the outcome they're looking for? Unclear at this point. But I think we know. I think yeah. we know what Erica, anyway, has in store. Right, because so Erica wants to raise—she asked the professor if she can take the medallion with her when she goes to the Carpathian Mountains, and he gets very angry. So he's like, hey, I am a respected academic. I'm not somebody who engages in necromancy. So whatever his research project is, it is not explicitly raising the dead. Maybe it's like learning how to raise the dead but not doing it. <laughs> 
It's like I yes, I do own the uh, the historic Asaroth medallion that will raise Countess Bathory from the grave, but I'm not into this stuff. Right. Shouldn't be into this stuff. <laughs> yeah, Erica. Exactly. Yeah. Um, this is just for historical interest. It's mm-hmm. not because I'm into it. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And for a limited time, get more fun for less with the Michigan Bundle for just $49.99. Exclusive to Michigan residents only. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Uh, but Erica starts seeing visions of a face in the flames of the fireplace. I, maybe it's Bathory's face. I don't remember. Uh, and she says, you know, it's been a long time since I fully embraced Satanism. Uh, but I've been talking to Elizabeth Bathory a lot, uh, talking to her spirit, really getting to know her. And she got a raw deal. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take Karen and Barbara with me to the castle. And I'm going to kill them and use their blood to raise the countess from the dead. And then we will enter a world of infinite power. And it doesn't matter that you won't give me the medallion because I'm going to kill you and take it. And then she strangles him with gold Mardi Gras beads. And as this is happening, we cut away to a painting on the wall. I think this is supposed to be a painting of Paul Nashi. Uh, and it. I'm going to say it's not a great likeness. It looks more <laughs> like acid test John Ham with like a beard and long hair. Mm-hmm. But it's when it zooms out, you see the other portraits on the wall. This man, again, he's this is the guy who's like, I will not do necromancy. The paintings on his wall are Paul Nashi, uh, Vlad the Impaler, and Bathory. Yeah, he really brought this on himself. But okay, Erica has the medallion now. Next scene, we get a couple of guys in a cemetery somewhere in the middle of the night, and they are arguing about whether it is a good idea to engage in grave robbery. 
there's like a, a sort of a, a stammering rustic character who isn't so sure about the propriety of stealing dead bodies. And then there is a rotund wealthy man in a tuxedo of sorts. Or I guess it's more kind of a old fashioned tuxedo ish looking thing. He's gesticulating with a skull top cane in his hand. It's got like a silver skull on top. Uh, and he seems to have hired the, the other guy and he's offering these smooth assurances that what they're doing is super cool all <laughs> above board. Uh, his story is they're going to, you know, they're going to recover some priceless artifacts and donate them to the museum in Budapest. Oh, and as they're wandering around arguing, we keep hearing this distant, booming, animalistic shriek, like one of the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park just bellowing in the night. Did you notice this, too? What was going on? I didn't notice this, but it makes sense given the way that they present the, the region surrounding the castle. Like, this is, this is a bad area. This is like Ravenloft territory. Uh, the only people who initially seem to be in this area are, like, grave robbers, bandits, um, and folks who are generally up to no good. That begins to shift a little bit, but at least initially, like, this is a bad land full of bad folk. Yes, like literally everyone in this geographic area will violently attack you on sight. Mm -hmm. But these two these two are also kind of fun. Like, I, I, I could have followed the, them around for a little bit more. I could see, like, this, the basic comic uh, mechanisms in play here. Oh, yeah, yeah. Th this was good. It was a good dynamic. So they go down into this underground crypt, uh, they find the grave of Count Valdemar Daninsky, and the gravedigger reads the inscription, which is just uh, uh, effusive promises of vicious supernatural revenge <laughs> against anyone who disturbs these remains. And Tuxedo Guy's like, all right, let's get a move on. Open it up. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, uh, they, you know, they take the stone cover off the vault and there's Paul Nashi still in his iron Ewok mask with a silver dagger poking out of his chest. The tuxedo guy greedily removes the dagger and then bam, it is instant lightning strikes and Valdemar's eyes start darting around behind the slits in his mask. This shot I thought was very scary. Yeah. Yeah. This is, this is pretty good. And of course, this also lines up with past, uh, Daninsky resurrection scenes and assignment terror it's done because what they they get the body of Daninsky and they perform an autopsy on it and remove a silver bullet from his heart, I think, something along mm. those lines. So the silver's in there, but the silver doesn't really kill Daninsky. Uh, it doesn't kill a super powerful werewolf. It just like turns them off. It puts them in this state of of unlife, but that can easily be reversed. It puts him in energy saver mode. Yeah. Oh, what do you know? These gravediggers picked the wrong night to do this because it's a full moon. So w wolf mode just instantly activates. He's growling and grabbing them by the neck with his claws. Blood dripping. Yeah, they're, they're gone. Yep. Okay, so then Karen, Barbara, and Erica, they are just already at the Carpathian Mountains. They're there. Uh, they rent a car from a local guy. They drive up to the mountains. Uh, where they have been warned that bandits will kill without hesitating and the devil rules overall. On the way, they do get attacked by horrible, violent local bandits, but they are saved when a figure in black with a crossbow shoots all three bandits with crossbow bolts. Uh, and they don't really seem to have the kind of questions you would expect about this. They just, like, get back into the car and drive on to their destination. I love, too, how... Um the the crossbow user here just fires them off in rapid uh, order so it's like yeah. it's a it's like a machine gun crossbow apparently 
Yeah, yeah. You think it would take more uh, reloading time, but maybe he had three crossbows ready. That's right. We don't we don't really see. He could have just a whole bushel of loaded crossbows on the ready. So they they go up to this castle. Um, what's up at the castle? Well, there's just sort of like loose bulk skeletons everywhere, and so like you know, rats are running in and out of rib cages. Skeletons with swords poking out of them. And there are rotting skeletons hanging by the neck in hallways. The implication is that they've been like that for hundreds of years. I don't know if that would work. I mean, I've, I've, we see this sort of castle in every Spanish horror movie from this time period. And mm-hmm. honestly, uh, you know, if one day I get the opportunity to go to Spain and experience the culture and the history, part of me is going to be a little upset if none of these castles look like this. <laughs> Where are all the skeletons? Yeah. Yes. Uh, but eventually, uh, Erica and Barbara, they go down into the crypt and they find Voldemar Daninsky's grave and they find Tuxedo Guy's skull cane earlier. Uh, one of them points out, hey, that is a silver top. That could be useful. Uh, and then they go down the hall to find the Bathory crypt. Meanwhile, Karen gets scared. Uh, she gets startled by another woman in the castle who she just kind of runs into who has burns on her face. This is Mirkaya, the character who uh, is sort of a tragic character. And then Karen stumbles outside. She gets startled because she sees Voldemar standing up in a uh, like a window or a gateway, pointing a crossbow at her. And then she like falls backward and faints, uh, falls into a hole. I have to say, Voldemar in these scenes, he looks like he looks great. He looks like a like a medieval uh, vigilante, a medieval superhero or something here. Yes. He's got black clothes with gold trim on the tunic and the 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 baseball symbol on his chest with uh, with a big dagger and a crossbow. He he looks cool. But you know, it's it's Paul Nashy cool, which is a different kind of cool than like Tom Cruise cool. <laughs> uh but here's one of those moments. I mean, there have been a couple already that I didn't really explain, but here's one of those moments. I think I alluded to this earlier uh in this episode, but there are a bunch of moments in the movie where it really feels like something is missing. We just suddenly jump ahead to the middle of another scene. And what happens here is suddenly the other two raise the deadologists, Erica and Barbara, are having dinner with Paul Nashi. They're like sitting at a table with him and he's being a gracious host. Uh, it felt to me like something got cut. Karen is recuperating from her fall in a bed. A uh, The servant, Mirkaya, hides a crucifix under her pillow. And Paul Nashi is uh, just, you know, he's entertaining his guests. He's like, you know, you're welcome to stay here. Oh, by the way, drink this special local infusion made with Transylvanian herbs. I thought this was going to turn them into wolves or something, but it doesn't. No, he's just looking after them. He just knows it's a good, like, diuretic or something. Yeah. But later, Erica and Barbara are hanging out, and they're talking about their host's identity. And Erica, uh, she is the evil one of the three, but she's also the best scholar of the three, I think. Mm -hmm. So she has figured out, this guy, that's Voldemar. Our host is Voldemar Daninsky, the wolfman, and she knows because of the baseball logo. And she explains a legend that uh, I think the way she says it is his curse can only be broken if a woman who loves him enough to die for him stabs him in the heart with a silver dagger. And I was just thinking, wait, isn't that exact same legend in Assignment Terror? That's it. Yeah, it's the exact way that uh, that it's described to us and exactly the way it plays out in that movie as well. So he's trying to create a pattern with the Voldemar character. It's like Dracula. It's, you know, there are rules that persist across different Dracula media, even if the story is totally different. Yeah. Though I'm off the top of my head, I can't remember how the werewolf and the Yeti ended 
on that front. I did watch it while I had COVID, so I was a little out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, yeah, it may end the same way as well. But yeah, every, every lots of things are different. But your you know your core Daninsky lore more or less is the same. I think it's a good move building out the lore that way. Uh, but so Barbara's freaked out, like, oh, we're at the Wolfman's castle. You know, we got to get out of here. But Erica says, don't worry. There's no way he can hurt us because this cane I found in the crypt has a silver top and bullets can be made out of that silver. <laughs> but where, thinking, where are they going to make bullets? Aren't you skipping a few steps? Also, do you have a gun that could shoot those bullets? <laughs> yeah, there's a crossbow around. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I don't know. See, yeah, it seems like they're they're skipping over a few stops on the road to feeling totally safe from werewolf troubles. <laughs> uh, meanwhile, we see Daninsky getting it. He he does werewolf trouble elsewhere. Uh, he goes into wolf mode and goes out to uh, to eat some people in the grounds around the castle. He gets into barn mischief. Yeah, there are multiple scenes of of him going out and murdering. And in general, though, even though we've we see a lot of bandits and we see a lot of grave robbers. Uh, Daninsky's finding people to kill that just don't seem to necessarily be up to mischief. They just seem to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. There's a lot of people beast. all camping around his castle. So it's it's yeah. bandit country full of horrible, nasty, violent bandits and, and grave robbers and thieves. Um, but also people just backpacking through the country, I guess. You know, they didn't have the All Trails app back there, so you didn't have the little icons that would pop up. It's like, okay, bandits, grave robbers, and werewolves on this one. Eh, maybe we should go for something a little closer into town. There have been 82 werewolf attacks in this location <laughs> in the past month. Yeah. Uh, now, I think later, I don't know if it's that night, some other time, Daninsky is shown talking to Mirkaya, the servant with the burns, and uh, they discuss... Uh, some things about their new guests. First of all, they say Karen is the chosen one. Don't know what that means yet. And they say Erica is evil. You got to be careful about her. But then Daninsky is like, but she is beautiful. <laughs> it's like, Valdemar, you should know better. But this is, he gets into trouble like this every time. Yeah. Remember that last girlfriend you had that was um, yeah. Elizabeth Bathory? <laughs> and she, she got you executed. And, and also she turned you into a werewolf. Come on. So uh, Erica later, she she's talking to the grave of Countess Bathory. And there's one part that made me laugh. The line was, she says, Elizabeth, the big day is near. Uh, so they're building up to the time when she can be resurrected, I think. Um, but here's the part where, again, it feels like something is just missing. Suddenly, Karen, the last time we saw her, she's like recovering from her fall in bed. Now, suddenly she's up and about and she and Daninsky are already in a relationship. They're like walking around the castle together, having a deep heart to heart conversation and they're kissing. And it feels like, OK, it, there should have been a scene where they're like first meeting and falling in love. But we don't see any of that. It's just now they're in love. Yeah. Yeah. It does feel like like we, we skipped over some steps there. But here we are. Full blown love story. She is the chosen one. Yeah. And by that, we're, I think, to uh, to understand that means that she loves him enough to potentially kill him with the silver dagger. With yeah. The silver. Yeah. Oh, and Erica is like staring at them with just uh, venom in her eyes. She's jealous. Yeah. Because, I mean, that's true love. I mean, people ask, well, you know, what is love? And it's it's been a universal human question for so long. But I mean, this movie answers it. It is. Do you love someone enough to stab them through the heart and destroy them when they're a werewolf? that's that's the litmus test right there i don't know if these are lessons that can be applied to your daily life i I, in a way i hope not 
Oh, but we also love uh, we learn about the uh, the Mirkaya backstory. Everybody loves Voldemort, by the way. So Erica loves Voldemort, or I don't know about loves him. She's jealous, at least. Um, Karen loves Voldemort, and Mirkaya also loves Voldemort. But she's like, you know, oh no, Karen, you're the chosen one. You can you can love him. I'll I'll just be sad. Uh, but her backstory is that she was accused of witchcraft and burned at the stake. But then a storm came and extinguished the fire. Uh, so she was able to escape and Voldemort took her in. And uh, I was a little confused about the timeline here. Like, did this happen since he was brought back from the dead a few days ago? It would have to be right. This would have had to have happened in 1980 yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, in, in rural Europe. So, um, yeah, uh, uh, otherwise they're skipping over some other stuff like, well, how did she come back to life? Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Roger that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. So later there's a full moon and then we get our first Paul Nashi wolf transformation scene. We've already seen him as a wolf man going out and biting people, but now we actually get to see him change and the transformation it's full of it's, you know, it's the passion of the wolf. The transformation is painful. It fills him with uh, not just physical pain, but moral and emotional anguish. He seems to be trying his best to resist it, to fight it off, but he can't. He breaks and throws a lot of furnishings in his house as he's changing. And the physical transformation, I would say, is primarily achieved via a stepwise migration of his beard up across his face. Yeah, yeah. The, um, the aspects of this transformation are very much in line with your classic Wolfman effects and I think mm -hmm. have to be judged within that context. 
Um, but I, I but I, I do I do think the ultimate look that we get the ultimate werewolf makeup looks really solid, mm. and Nashi's performance, the emotion he pours into the transformation, is so good. I apologize if this is a question that I've already asked. Maybe when we were covering Assignment Terror, I don't remember. But uh, I wonder if one or the other werewolf design better lends itself to the tragedy of the werewolf story. Like, so both American Werewolf in London and this this story both have like a tragic werewolf where you feel sad for him. But American Werewolf has the more dog form, quadrupedal, long snout. Uh, this one is the, you know, the the classic Longini human style head up on, you know, very bipedal. Uh, which one do you think uh, goes more for the sadness of, of the werewolf condition? Oh, that's a good question. I don't know. I mean, one would be tempted to think, well, the one that looks more human, maybe you know, he leans into more of a human understanding of the monster and therefore the snouted werewolves lean more monstrous. But uh, but it, I don't think it's necessarily the case because, you know, in, I think you feel a lot of sympathy for the beast in American Werewolf in London. Um, so hard to say. I will say this, though. I think that for the most part, the traditional wolfman has been easier to integrate physically into a scene. Mm, Whereas yes. if you have an elaborate snouted beast, the practical effect may be difficult to integrate. And then by the time you're getting to CGI stuff, well, obviously, there are going to be integration problems there as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I guess the more human form Wolfman can do human relationship uh, posture, like can hug somebody or something like that. Yeah. And you can, I guess you can also make a strong argument for, even though we're talking about a lot of werewolf makeup, the actor is still able to emote through the makeup, through that costume, yeah. and embody that character in a way that might be more difficult or even impossible with other other forms of effects that are going to be necessary for your your full snout boy werewolf. Yeah. Uh, okay, so anyway, in the scene, there's a transformation, but once wolf mode is fully throttled up, like he menaces Karen for a second. It's like, oh no, is he going to attack his beloved? But no, in, in, uh, just when he's about to, Mirkaya shows up to save the day. She holds out a silver cross and holds it in his face, and this seems to kind of shame him out of eating his new girlfriend. Instead, he jumps through a window runs around outside until he finds a guy camping, <laughs> a, camp <laughs> a camper cooking a pot of something over a fire, and he attacks. Uh, then he also goes to a village and just attacks more people. He, like, bites a lady who's getting water out of a well and then kind of casually drops her in a watering trough and runs away. Mm -hmm. And I'll say Daninsky is a very efficient werewolf. Like, most attacks, there are some exceptions. Like, earlier in the movie, there's one part where he, like, attacks a lady and then, like, carries her away. But in most attacks, he just, like, bites somebody and then bolts. Like, he grabs their arms, bite the neck, show the blood on his teeth to the camera that gle gleams in the moonlight for a second, and then he drops the human and runs away. The whole thing is about eight seconds. Yeah, I mean, it's almost like it's it, it, he's, he's, he's shameful over it. You know, it's like the beast overcomes him, and in, in, and in satisfying this thirst, this hunger for just a second, like it's also enough for him to sort of wake up a little bit and like drop what he's doing and move on. Mm, yeah. I mean, I'm so probably what? being overly generous <laughs> in that analysis, though. No, no, I think that makes sense. Yeah, he's like, uh, there, there's a little bit of human Daninsky still operative in there that can that can be like, oh, what have I done? And then he runs away, but then he does it again because he's a wolf. So while he's out, uh, Mirkaya fills Karen in on some lore. She she explains 
I don't know, sort sort of the backstory. And then she's like, by the way, remember your scientist friends who you came here with? Yeah, let's hope they're dead because if not, they're vampires now. Uh, And if you see them again, use this silver cross-shaped dagger to protect yourself from them. And uh, you know what? Mirkaya's instincts are are right on the money. So Erica has uh, done exactly what she told the professor she was going to do. She hypnotizes Barbara, kills her, uses her blood to rehydrate Elizabeth Bathory <laughs> like yeah. uh, like drips her blood down on her and the rehydration scene has a pretty cool looking effect where the blood like drips onto the statue of Bathory on the grave and it starts sort of dissolving the stone and releasing puffs of steam and Erica's looking around frantically she's like oh dude I did it what's up now and <laughs> uh, the, the lid lifts off the vault and Bathory wakes up and she has a very creepy outfit. I like the costuming in the scene. It's a black dress with gold trim, kind of like Daninsky's black outfit with gold trim. Mm. And it has this two lobed bonnet. I don't know what you call that. It's a bonnet that has two humps instead of one. Yeah, I don't know what it's called either. The uh, Bathory bonnet. We'll it's call it. good. It's got the gold trim, the black veil, uh, and no messing around at all. She just grabs Erica, vamps her. Okay, here's one vampire servant. Uh, it's a neck bite, uh, and then she also raises one of her other servants from the dead. But unlike Valdemar and the Countess, this guy is fully decayed. He's a zombie. Yeah, this would be Otvos that she's revived as a like a blind dead s zombie like he's crumbling and skeletal uh, but also pretty bulky like obviously he's intended to be the heavy of the outfit and at this point in the film i'm like oh man it's it's on now because bathory not only is bathory revived and resurrected but now she has a crew she has she has uh, otvos here she's got uh, vampire ladies a number of them and seemingly she's going to recruit even more so now she is already a force to contend with no there was a part uh, somewhere around here that made me laugh out loud it's the scene where paul nashi comes home after a hard night of wolfing out mm-hmm. uh, you remember he like he staggers in the door and he's exhausted and covered in blood and karen's waiting there <laughs> and embraces him it just seems like it's been a hard day's night <laughs> but then there's a scene where Bathory has her first, like she has the minions assembled. They're all standing there in formation in front of her crypt. They're ready to take orders. Uh, and now both of the former uh, dead raziologists are wearing uh, vampire queen dresses. Like they're now all in black dresses like Bathory. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking, wait, where did they get the new costumes? Did they pack these vampire queen dresses when they came to Transylvania? Or does Countess Bathory have a community wardrobe for, for new vampires to, to source from? Oh, I mean, I guess she has wardrobe because she can't have her, her new minions running around in like trendy uh, t-shirts that they bought in Rome. No, no, no. They need a, they need to look the part. They're representing a brand now. That's right. So they're in uniform and Bathory says to them, we need Paul Nash's power. She says, quote, Valdemar must serve me again. We need his strength, his thirst for death, his invulnerability. I won't have all my power back until the great ritual night. Then our Lord Satan will answer my call and the kingdom of darkness will come to earth. Until then, the werewolf must be under my command. So there are basically two factions operating now. You've got like Valdemar, Karen, and Mirkaya on one side, and then Bathory and all her minions on the other. But they are all in the same building, which is interesting. <laughs> well, yeah, well, there's this, I don't know if this occurs now or later, but there's this whole like subplot, the research plot, where 
they take off, uh, the, the vampires take off, and then they steal some coffins from somebody, or they yeah, get they some relocate. coffins delivered. Yeah, they yeah. relocate. But then, uh, meanwhile, Daninsky's researching, and then finally he's like, oh, they didn't relocate, they're in the same castle. Uh, so I was a little confused on how that came together. Yeah, I, I, I didn't quite understand that either. But for now, they're definitely in the same place. And the Blood Countess, she sends uh, Vampire Erica out to Vamp Mirkaya because she's like, we got to take away from his side. Uh, so, you know, Erica does that. She vamps Mirkaya um, and then bathes in her blood. But then Valdemar and Karen find evidence of this. Uh, and then uh, suddenly we cut there again. There's like some very like jumpy editing. We cut suddenly to these dudes eating with Valdemar and Karen in this uh, very brown room. Yeah. Yeah. Out of nowhere. Suddenly they seem to be academics that that uh, Valdemar has called up or something or they're just paying a house visit. They're like, hey, Valdemar, let's let's talk. What's what's going on? And that's what out. you think. Yeah, that's what you think at first. So they're sharing news of the surrounding towns and countryside. They're like, werewolves and vampires are killing everybody and draining their blood. Uh, so I think we are to understand now that, like, Bathory's vampires have been operating in the area for a while. But that mm -hmm. clearly would mean we've cut forward in time because they just rose. One of the guys is, well, they're like, you've got to use garlic to protect yourself. One guy recommends putting garlic in your in one's rectum, uh, and then the other one scolds him for being crude and saying that. Uh, but they do say, hey, the vampires are women. And then Daninsky's like, oh, I know what that means. That's Bathory's people. Mm. So while at first it seems like these guys might be professors or clerics of some kind, what do you know? They're also just thieves. They they want to burglarize. <laughs> they want to burglarize Valdemar's castle. Bad idea, guys. Uh, but before they get the chance, they're hanging out in a barn somewhere outside. I think this is the barn where everybody gets attacked. It's the barn of mischief, and uh, they're hanging out there. And two of Bathory's vamp women like treadmill glide into the room, surrounded by unholy mist. It's a cool-looking vamp glide scene. I love it. Now, here's a history of cinema question. This is used in a lot of films where, like, the vampire is shot, you know, you see above, from above their feet. They're shot from the waist up or something, and they move towards you clearly without walking. Like, their legs are not moving uh, and suggesting that maybe they're floating an inch above the floor or something. What was the first movie to do that? Where does the glide convention come from? Hmm, that's a great question. I would I would venture to guess not here. I'm assuming no. the film borrows it from somewhere. Uh, but yeah, I don't know if this is a product of like the uh, the Hammer era or if this goes all the way back to the 30s or what. I, I, I off the top of my head, I can't think of the earliest example that that I, I've seen. I don't recall it happening in any of the the Universal uh, vampire movies. But I feel like it's a definite Hammer play, though. I think I've yeah. seen it in Hammer films before. Another place where it feels like we suddenly jump ahead, we cut straight from the vamp ladies looming in the mist to Voldemar and Karen finishing graves for the two thief guys, talking about how, yeah, we had to put stakes in them and cut their heads off to make sure they wouldn't come back. But Voldemar goes on to say, you know what, okay, so we, we know what's happening now. Bathory's back. She's going to want to kill you, Karen. So tonight, you got to lock yourself in your room and keep this uh, cross next to you, the silver dagger here. Now, Karen at this point asks an extremely sensible question, the one I was thinking about. She's like, why don't we just go down in the crypts? Like, they're down there in the same building we are. Why don't we go down and destroy them? Uh, but Voldemar has an answer. I guess this makes sense. He says, I'm not strong enough yet. Can't do it until the full moon comes. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's only in the werewolf form that he's going to have any chance of standing up to Bathory and her minions. Um, and uh, and I think you could probably add on top of that, it's like this apparent this castle is apparently huge, and it's uh, it's uh, it's dungeons and its crypts are extensive. So we're not sure even exactly where they might be down there. And they've got to they got to spend all their time just cleaning up the would be vampires <laughs> in yeah. the surrounding countryside and burying their dead. I guess that's true. Uh, so that night, there are vampire attacks on both Karen and Voldemort, but Karen really comes through. She saves the day. So vampire Barbara attacks her, but she fights her off with the silver cross dagger. And then Barbara emits a lot of smoke, but I couldn't tell if she was actually like destroyed as a vampire or just kind of incapacitated. I'm not sure. Uh, but then another one of the vamps, uh, this was Erica, comes into Voldemar's room and starts to hypnotize him, starts kissing him. She's ready to bite, but then Karen busts in with the silver cross and rescues him. Is this the scene with the mirror over the bed? Yes. Yeah, so this, the vampire has great. no reflection. Yeah. Yeah. So in the in the forefront, it's Voldemar and the, the vampire embracing and kissing. But then in the mirror behind him, he's like, he's like kissing an invisible woman. Yeah. That's uh, great. So now Voldemar and Karen, I guess he's changed his mind about going down to the crypts. He tries to go on offense, goes down there. Uh, he fights the Otvos zombie. Uh, that, that's over pretty quick. Yeah, yeah. He makes pretty short work about Otvos. I was kind of hoping for a more drawn-out battle between those two. But, but yeah, he, he knows what he's doing. Takes him out in no time. But the vamps aren't there. They have now relocated. And then, uh-oh, a terrible twist happens. Uh, Bathory herself sneaks into Karen's room at night and she manages to get around the defense, uh, the, the security system of the silver dagger by covering it up with a cloth. Didn't think of that. <laughs> mm -hmm. Doesn't she do it? She does it telekinetically, I think, too. She's like, whoosh. Oh, yeah. And she covers it up with a cloth uh, and then she vamps Karen or partially vamps her. So maybe you can help explain what you thought was going on here. So her plan is to re-recruit Valdemar to her service and she's using Karen to do that. So she bites Karen. But then the next day, Karen seems fine during the daytime. What's going on? She like she does have an ominous look in her eye. And then we see Bathory returning again the next night to bite to bite Karen once again. So I think the vamping here is coming in installments, unlike the previous ones were just like one bite. And now you're a vampire. Yeah, I think maybe like the willing evil soul. It only takes one dose. But. Yeah, you know, if you're Karen, Karen's a good girl. So it's going to take take a little more finesse, you know, like a little this night, a little the next night, and kind of work up to that uh, that full uh, vampire transformation. Now, there was one part here that was really funny, and I was hoping it was going in a certain direction, but it just it turned out to be a dream sequence. But uh, Valdemar is he's hanging out and. Uh, he, I think, imagines Bathory saying, like, praying to Satan or to some other, like, evil demon, saying, my evil lord, send 99 black cats. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm glad we did not get 99 black cats. My brain was uh, immediately going, 99 black cats, 99 fries, 99 tacos, 99 pies. Yeah, I don't know. I just, I was just thinking of the animals. I don't want to see that many animals in one shot in a film of this, uh, of this genre and time period. But so anyway, we're building up to a final confrontation. So it's the night of the full moon, which means Valdemar will finally be at full power for wolf mode to defeat Bathory. But this is also going to be the night that Bathory can do the ritual to achieve her full power, and then she would defeat him. 
But also, while he's in wolf mode, he's going to be a bloodthirsty monster, so Karen can't be around. So she'll have to hide from him and protect herself. And uh, then, but then after he explains all this and leaves, Karen like admires her neck bites in the mirror, but she still has a reflection. So I think she is half vamped here. Mm. Her will has been partially transformed to evil. So she seems like, oh, yes, my neck bites. That is good. I will betray him. And she's serving Bathory's commands. But she can still go out in daytime and she still shows up in a mirror, which actually this seems like an ideal conversation. She's kind of a daywalker here, but like an evil daywalker. So wouldn't Bathory want to keep servants in this state so that, you know, they can do all this instead of making them full vampires? Well, I guess it's it's a tenuous state. Uh, and I think we see evidence of that, you know, like she's she's not fully one side or the other. And so we don't know which way, way it's going to go. But also... Bathory doesn't know 100% which way she's going to go. Well, Karen's doing doing what she's told for now. Like, she knocks out Valdemar with a silver cane. He wakes up later. He figures out what's going on, that, that she has been half-vampired. And then he goes to the vampire lair, which he knows where it is now for some reason. I don't remember how he discovers that. It's like by looking at maps, I think. Something occurred during the research portion of the film, yeah. And he, he yeah. was like, oh, I now I know where it is. It's, it's, it's just downstairs. So we get some stakings of the lesser vamps, uh, a werewolf transformation, and then plenty of werewolf versus vampire wrestling. It's a big, it's a big wrestling match at the end. Um, more vampires are inadvertently staked when the wolfman tosses them into wooden crates that explode on impact. One in particular of these was a really quality kill. I really like this. This is a cool effect. Bathory tries to force him to obey. You know, there's a do as I command you kind of moment, and he doesn't. He snarls and drools instead. The wolfman cannot be cannot be tamed, uh, so they keep on fighting. Uh, there's wrestling. There's some telekinesis, I guess. Yeah, there's a great scene where she does like a telekinetic coffin torpedo attack against mm-hmm. Daninsky, where she makes a coffin fly at him and it shatters against him. Uh, I, that was really nice. Uh, so yeah, it's, it seems like an evenly matched battle for the most part because Daninsky is strong and fierce and has teeth, but she has teeth too. Plus she has these kind of like force powers she's able to bust out. Yeah. So eventually though, he gets the upper hand and he bites Bathory and then crams her in her coffin. And then uh, the bites on Karen's neck magically disappear. And then Bathory speed rots and emits smoke And Karen is okay now. It seems she has healed from her half-vampire state. But unfortunately, just as he warned, Wolf Mode Valdemar can't be stopped. He attacks her. uh, And then Karen, just like the legend foretold, she stabs him in the heart with the silver dagger. I, I don't know if it's in the heart, actually. It looks more like it's in the stomach. But she frees him from his curse. But he already bit her, so I think she's done for as well. And it's the classic sad ending that I think it ended almost exactly like this in the other nashi movie we saw where they both die but now his spirit is free the curse has been lifted and it's and it's sad and we get the classic post-mortem regression to human morph of the werewolf and karen crawls to his side to die it is tragic but i have to say that i liked this i wouldn't want to change it but the sense of sadness and tragedy is strongly undercut by the fact that it cuts straight back to the funk theme from tentacles and the screen says end (laughs) Yeah, that that funk theme from Tentacles. Too risky a day for a regatta. Um, It's both times it's used in the film. It is at once out of place 
and a little bit jarring, but also perfect. Like I yeah. wouldn't go back and replace it with anything. It's just, it's, it's a wonderful track. So many horror films, especially your you know, generation of postmodern horror films, have explored the question of who would win in a fight between a vampire and a werewolf. This movie sort of answers, well, the werewolf will win, but in the end, love conquers all. Love defeats even the wolf. <laughs> yeah, I guess in many ways, like the werewolf is the more passionate and emotional end of the, the monster spectrum. And the vampire is like is the cold hunger, you know, so you would you would want the uh, the wolf to win out over the bat in this scenario. I don't know. For, for some reason, it, it feels closer to the human experience and the, and and more empowering of like noble human elements. I'm going to say the vampire is somewhere between lawful and neutral evil, and mm-hmm. the werewolf is somewhere between chaotic evil and chaotic neutral. Yeah, I would agree with that, with all of that. Yeah, like even if you were to flip either of them to good, you'd still want to uh, be with the werewolf over the vampire because uh, the, the vampire is just always going to have something uh, less trustworthy about them. I don't know. It seems like vampire versus werewolf movies that I can think of, like it's always the case. The werewolf is the more sympathetic side. You're going to side with the lichens over the vamps. Uh, If there is an example of the opposite out there, uh, let us know. I would like to hear about that as well. Well, it's because the werewolf is still partially human, I think, and the vampire is not. Yeah. Yeah. And also the the vampire is more strongly undead, whereas the werewolf is still, you know, it's more within the realm of of supernatural mammal at that point. And the more I think about it, there's a pretty straightforward moral difference in the kind of like violence they do, which is that the vampire is a is directly intentionally predatorily evil is just doing Mm -hmm. harm to other people consciously on purpose, whereas the werewolf is seems to be like it has lost its mind in a way like it doesn't know what it's doing. Yeah, yeah. I think that's it. Exactly. Now that you mention it, the vampire is premeditated. Yeah. And we see that with these characters, like at the very beginning, uh, Daninsky's like, I don't know, I guess I'm going to die. I don't know. I haven't really thought through it. I'm just heartbroken. Whereas Bathory is like, I will come back. I will raise an army of the dead. I will have my vengeance and we'll bring on a new age of darkness. Now, I've got another question about this story. Uh, It's clear in this version of the story, the historical understanding of Bathory is that she was guilty of all the murders, like she was Mm -hmm. a horrible serial killer. Uh, I wonder if the other historical interpretation could make an interesting movie, like she was innocent and wrongly convicted, but then comes back from the grave. Yeah, I'm I'm up for it. I'm up for any kind of uh, novel Bathory film. I don't think there are a lot of them that are really novel, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, I think this this one really might be more of an outlier in that it uh, puts more thought into the treatment. All right. Well, there you have it. Night of the Werewolf from 1981. Uh, pretty solid Nashi film. I think if you've never seen a Nashi picture, uh, this one's a pretty good introduction to the, the sort of sort of stuff you get. Uh, and it also, you know, it's not for children by any stretch of the imagination, but it's also not too scandalous. So uh, I, I recommend this one and I recommend the, um, the, the Paul Nashi collections part one and two. Just a reminder to everyone out there, we are primarily a science podcast. Um, uh, real science, not just the, the necromancy stuff, though occasionally it comes up, um, with core episodes publishing on Tuesdays and Thursdays, uh, listener mail on Mondays, short form artifact or monster fact on Wednesdays. But on Fridays, we set aside most serious concerns to just talk about weird films on Weird House Cinema. If you want a full list of the movies we've covered over the years, you can go to letterboxd.com. That's L-E-T-T-E-R-B-O-X-D.com. Our username is Weird House, and we have a list there. 
You can fire them all up. You can organize them by decade and genre and what have you. It's a lot of fun. And I also blog about these episodes at samutamusic.com. Here's thanks to our excellent audio producer, J.J. Posway. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And for a limited time, get more fun for less with the Michigan Bundle for just $49.99. Exclusive to Michigan residents only. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA.